Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. Now, when I went to rabbinical school, uh, they taught us how to answer questions. Only problem is that most of the questions I'm asked today were never uh, given to me or taught to me in rabbinical school. And so uh, questions I'm often asked are, for example, um, how do you think of something to say every week? And then, of course, the answer to that is the world is a remarkably complex place. And uh, biblical literature is remarkably complex in that year after year and cycle after cycle. We'll take, for example, on this very Shabbat. There are thousands of congregations throughout the world, which means that thousands of rabbis will be speaking on this Shabbat, hopefully about a thousand different things. So there is no limit to precisely what you can say. And in fact, the ancient rabbis had a beautiful expression. They referred to the Torah as an ocean. And as the ocean is, whose depth is beyond our reach, so too is Torah. The next question I'm often asked is, how did I ever end up in a job like this? Which is a whole other story for a different time. But I think in some way it reflects a, a deeper reality. But lately, over the past week or so, I've been asked another, another question. I've been stopped at the bank at the gas station, at the gym, at the dry cleaner, and even at Starbucks with the same question. What do you think of Trump's decision on Jerusalem? Now this morning I'm going to fulfill a promise of sorts. A week ago Donald Trump gave his official recognition on behalf of the government of the United States as that Jerusalem is now the official capital of the state of Israel. And he set in motion the many years long process to move the embassy from the beaches of Tel Aviv to the hilly streets of Jerusalem. Last week, we were honored to have the German Consul General here at the Shul as our guest after my visit to Germany and Berlin, and my sermon at that time was devoted to the trip and its experiences. Timing is imperfect, but here goes. Now, people also sent me articles from almost every major opinion writer with their thoughts about Trump's decision and move. And I thought perhaps, while I'm not a political commentator, maybe I could offer something a little different on the situation. But first, I have to put my cards on the table. I am a unabashed, self-declared Tel Avivi. I was born in Brooklyn, but I came of age in Tel Aviv. School and a whole lot of years of living there taught me how to love Tel Aviv as something quintessentially Israeli. Now, I did Jerusalem for a year and a half, but my heart, with apologies to Tony Bennett, is in Tel Aviv. But you'd have to be blind not to agree that Jerusalem might be that beautiful person you stared at all night long at the dance. So I'm going to tell you first that I'm torn over the Trump proclamation. Then I'm going to tell you the problems that I see, and then hopefully I'm going to tell you something hopeful. So first, I'm torn. The problems surrounding his proclamation runs along these lines. The first problem, and perhaps the largest, is that it comes from Donald Trump, who is, on an unprecedented scale, is easily the most unfit and ill-suited person to sit in the White House in modern times. It is no longer a mere suspicion or accusation to say that given the preponderance of evidence today, he is a person 
without a semblance of values, of a thought system, of accountability. He says things that he thinks people want to hear, even though he himself believes no value in it. So first blush, when I heard this, I was scared. Because clearly Donald Trump didn't do this out of some core conviction. He doesn't have any. He did it to appease a portion of his base. And he's trying to hold on to. And for a president with an approval rating floating around 32%, you would think that would be job number one for him. And given his past record of saying one thing to one person and then saying another contradictory thing to a second person, I believe then and believe now that there is nothing that would stop him from reversing his decision with something like, you know, after consultations with our allies and other parties, my administration has decided to take a step back. You can fill in the rest of the words on this, just make sure it's 280 characters or less. In short, in matters such as this, there are two items to weigh. There's the message, and there's the messenger. It also put Israeli politicians in a no-win situation. Regardless of how they felt about the messenger, they had to publicly celebrate Trump's pronouncement because saying otherwise would be treasonous. No doubt current Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu was thrilled, though, saddled as he is with two simultaneous corruption investigations against him personally, and a third against close associates, plus many protests of many thousands of Israelis in Tel Aviv and other cities on consecutive Saturday evenings against him and his government for corruption, this must have been a welcome distraction and something that he could champion as a trophy. The other problems in this are to be found in an inflaming of Sunni-Arab relations with Israel, it is these relationships that have been quietly developing between Israel and countries like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, and they could be chilled from becoming more public as a result of this. It also removes one of the most potent bargaining elements to bring and keep the Palestinians at the table and enforce the critical security agreements and cooperation that they currently have ongoing with the Israelis. But even worse, the announcement was, as the Talmudic expression goes, kich kich karie, or in English, an empty barrel makes the most noise. Which is to say that in hand for all the above that I gave you earlier, the facts on the ground are already there. After all, when a foreign diplomat arrives in Israel, does the Israeli Prime Minister meet them in Tel Aviv? No, they come to Jerusalem. When Anwar Sadat came to Israel to bid for peace, did he go to Tel Aviv? No, Anwar Sadat went to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, and he spoke to the Israeli Knesset. And worse still is that after Trump's pronouncement, only one other country recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, the Czech Republic. But with one twist, and an ominous one at that. They recognized only West Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel, not the entire city. So you'll forgive me for feeling like this was walking on a treadmill. You broke a sweat, but you didn't get anywhere, and you're in the exact same place that you were before you started. Okay, so that was the bad news. But I promise you some good news. The reason why foreign diplomats and business leaders 
and Anwar Sadat came to Jerusalem and not Tel Aviv is because Jerusalem is the capital of the state of Israel. To say otherwise is not just to ignore, but to be ignorant to reality. In 1948, when the armistice was signed between the newly born state of Israel and the invading Arab nations, a line was drawn dividing the city. West was Israel, east was Jordan. And there it stood for another 19 years until Jordan invaded Israel and then in an Israeli counterattack gave it the east part of the city along with the West Bank during the Six-Day War. In the year 2000, Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak put on a table what was called the deal of a lifetime to the Palestinians. 92% of the West Bank control and ownership of the Islamic religious areas of Jerusalem and a series of Jerusalem Arab suburbs that were connected to Ramallah, which is the capital of the Palestinian Authority. In 2008, then-Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert made another deal of a lifetime. He made it to Mahmoud Abbas, who was the president of the Palestinian Authority. This time he offered 93% of the West Bank, and he offered to place East Jerusalem under international control. It would be no longer under Israeli sovereignty. Both times Israel was told, no. It's like the story about the efforts to get Hamas and the Israelis to talk to one another, to negotiate. At the end of one table is the head of Hamas, the terror organization, Khalid Mashal. At the end of the other table is the Israeli Prime Minister. In the middle is the negotiator. Hamas begins the, the negotiations by saying, death to all the Jews. And the negotiator turns to the Israeli Prime Minister and says, can't you at least meet them halfway? By ignoring reality on the ground, the Palestinians are saying they want it all. The Israelis want peace and security, and there appears to be no bridging this difference. And ever since then, we have been dancing to the same music. Palestinians will not negotiate a compromise, and the Israelis will not negotiate without a compromise. And so maybe, just maybe, this pronouncement that after 72 hours, lacked any international uproar, had very little protests or violence, may once and forever blunt the approach that the Palestinians have been using for the past 20 years. Their strategy has been the hope that international protests and criticism with the growing BDS movement would marginalize Israel to the point that they would have to capitulate and give in to what the Palestinians wanted, no matter the cost to Israel. The only problem with that is, is that Abbas and the Palestinians fail to account for one thing, Israelis. And so now I want to take you back to Tel Aviv. One beautiful summer evening, I sat by the ocean in the old port in Tel Aviv. I looked to my left and there it was that in 1932, the very first Jewish Olympic Games, the Maccabi, was held. Within weeks of its announcement, a sports stadium was built that housed thousands of athletes from 25 countries. To the south of me, in 1934, Tel Aviv's first international exhibition, the Levant Fair, was held. Within eight months of announcing the fair, a compound was built housing representatives of 36 countries and 2,200 companies. 
By the end of the year, over 600,000 people had come to the grounds and the exhibition. Just a bit west of where I sat, only two years later, in 1936, they announced the construction of Tel Aviv's first major power plant. It was completed in nine months. At the same time, Israel's first airport was built nearby. And in that same year, Tel Aviv's port, the first Hebrew port built in that country in over 2,000 years, was commissioned. Within weeks, the porous custom house was built. A wooden pier was opened. And thousands of people gathered to watch the first cement shipment arrive. And they sang the Hatikva as they carried the packages ashore. At the end of the month, the wooden pier was hit by a storm and it was washed out to sea. And a week later, it was rebuilt. This time of steel and iron. And there it stands to this very day. These stories are personal, but not because any of them happened to me. They're personal because these stories are about you and me. Why 80 years ago did Jews settle 80, 10 kilometers north of Jaffa to start a city on a sandy scratch of beach? What is it that made them think that there of all places in the world they could imagine a new home where they could flourish? Which is to say that after all of this, Israelis have a near supernatural tolerance for pain and delayed gratification. And if they have to wait another 30 years, they will until a sensible and safe agreement is reached. And there I was in the old port of Tel Aviv, watching the old people and the young people, children with their parents, friends with friends, lovers holding their hands, and it all seemed so miraculous to me that only two generations ago, the entire Jewish world stood at the edge of the fire, and here we are, prosperous and growing, engaged and meaningful in a world that forever seems tilted against us. And there in the port you also see that there are children everywhere. Israeli families, even irreligious ones, have big families. And any sane person would ask why. 20 kilometers to the south, 20 kilometers to the east, 100 kilometers to the north are hundreds of millions of people who want to obliterate them. But no matter, we know no other way. So what do I think of Donald Trump's pronouncement? I'll answer it with the second question. Why did I become a rabbi? It's because I believe that this world is more than the things that you can see. I believe that this world has value beyond the things that we can touch. I believe, most importantly, that there is a world beyond our reckoning a world of feeling and emotion, of soul and spirit that is beyond our reach, but something that is very much in our heart. The ancient rabbis put it another way. In their mind, they said there were actually two Jerusalems, a Yerushalayim Shalmata, an earthly one, and a Yerushalayim Shalmala, a heavenly Jerusalem, which is to say that you could live with only a heavenly one. You could. One that existed only in your dreams and your hearts, as Jews did for thousands of years. A Jerusalem of the Spirit alone. But they also knew that, knew that you couldn't live with only an earthly one. One of brick and mortar that could be taken and destroyed, leaving us with nothing. And we are blessed that in our lifetime we now have both. The earthly and the heavenly. The Spirit 
and the land, the sword and the book. And we are, no matter what people pronounce, we are worthy of them both. Shabbat Shalom.